From the silver screen, to the printed page, to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures. And it turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Matsky, and this is Monster Study Group. Pull up a chair, take a seat, and welcome to episode five, which is all about the first Godzilla movie, which was released in Japan in 1954, which is quite possibly my favorite film of all time. It's kind of a fluid top five, but this always hovers at the top. More on that in a minute. If you'd like to stay in touch with Monster Study Group throughout the week, we're on Twitter, at Monster Study, and on Instagram, just search for Monster Study Group. Your letter can be sent to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com, and please let me know if it is okay for me to read it on the show. I've got a couple exciting things to report as we get started today. First is that I recently was in Wadsworth, Ohio, to record a couple episodes of Monsteropolis, the official podcast of Small Town Monsters, and while there, I received my advanced copy of Making Monsters. Making Monsters is a retrospective book chronicling the first five years of Small Town Monsters, and, full disclosure, I contributed a 20,000-word history to it, detailing the production of each film beginning with Minerva Monster and leaving off with Momo the Missouri Monster. My friend Seth, who directs these films, wrote the introduction, and his wife Adrian did the layout and design, and it exceeds all my expectations. If you listen to episode one of this podcast, then you know how important books have been when it comes to my enjoyment of monster-related topics. So, to have helped bring one to life is very meaningful to me. The Making Monsters book was originally conceived as an exclusive Kickstarter reward, meaning that it would only be available to those who backed in February of this year. But there may be some copies that show up on the Small Town Monsters website in mid to late September. You'll want to keep your eye on smalltownmonsters.com forward slash shop if you're interested in obtaining a copy. There's a lot of conversation going on at Small Town Monsters headquarters about the potential for more published projects of this nature. So if that's something you'd like to see, feel free to voice your opinion at smalltownmonsters at gmail.com or on any of STM's social media. Another excitement, my wife and I are both gearing up to film our scenes for Small Town Monsters' upcoming documentary, The Mark of the Bell Witch. That should happen the weekend this episode posts. 
we will both be part of a few historical recreations and I'm really looking forward to the style in which these scenes will be presented. It's kind of astonishing to consider that this will be the third STM dock we've acted in. The first was Flatwoods Monster, in which Sue also did voiceover work. The second was Momo, and Bellwitch makes three. Actually, being in a monster movie is next level stuff for someone like me. And the truth is, it still seems quite surreal. If you haven't seen these films, I hope you'll check them out. They're on an ever-expanding variety of platforms. And if physical media is your thing, smalltownmonsters.com shop will hook you up. One last thing. I've been in communication with Derek M. Cook of Monster Kid Radio, which is just a brilliant, long-running podcast, 486 episodes to be exact, not to mention a Rondo Award winner. It's one of my favorites. It's been like a Monster Island oasis for me during this summer of no Monster Bash, no G-Fest. Well, here's the announcement. Starting this coming week, I'm becoming a contributor to Monster Kid Radio. Each week, I will be recording and submitting a two-minute segment called Beta Capsule Reviews, which will go episode by episode through the various Subaraya Ultra series, beginning with Ultra Q. I am really looking forward to being a tiny part of the Monster Kid Radio family. You can listen on all the major podcatchers, and I believe new shows are released on Thursdays. So thank you, Derek. This is going to be fun. And now let's enter the world of 1954 in the production of the first Godzilla film. wake of World War II, life in Japan was characterized by upheaval, scarcity, and fundamental questions of identity. However, I describe it is undoubtedly an understatement. And the relationship between Japan and its occupier, the United States, was understandably complicated. The U.S. had gone from sworn enemy to agent of unimaginable carnage, to paternal rebuilder. And the rebuilding didn't happen without stipulations. The one that matters most to this discussion is related to the media. Whether on TV or the radio, the printed news or the cinema, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were not to be spoken of and the United States of America was supposed to be portrayed in the most favorable light possible. 
the U.S. had its reasons for this, and Japan had no choice but to comply. But if you tell someone they're not supposed to think about a purple elephant, what are they guaranteed to think about? Especially a purple elephant that shifted the foundations of your culture and eliminated thousands of your fellow citizens in the blink of an eye. It was inevitable that meditations about how the war had ended would leak out and finally find expression somewhere. So it was that Tomoyuki Tanaka, super producer for Toho Studios, found himself in a real bind. A big-budget motion picture that had been planned as an anchor of the year's release schedule fell apart in the final stages of pre-production. It left a huge hole, one that simply had to be filled. With no time to waste, Tanaka began to brainstorm a replacement project considerably different than its predecessor. Without hiding the influence of the recently released American film, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, Tanaka knew he had the personnel to create something similar and set the wheels in motion to do just that. It was a gamble and a gutsy one. There was no guarantee that a simple monster movie was going to replicate the kind of box office receipts that the canceled film would have brought in, but Tanaka was fairly confident that, in the right hands, it could turn a profit, which, under the circumstances, was the right bar to set. The movie that began its life as Project G was born as a pragmatic solution to a pressing problem. But the artists that Tanaka recruited would suffuse the film with an almost intangible quality that transcended a traditional monster-on-the-loose synopsis. What they would tap into was the purple elephant, the truth that must not be spoken, the reality that Tokyo had been firebombed, and Hiroshima and Nagasaki decimated with the most fearsome weapons ever used by man upon man. And somehow, life for the living had continued, but not without suffering, regret, and an elemental rethinking of what it meant to be Japanese. Those involved with Project G would draw on these deep wells of emotion and experience knowing that they could not express any of it directly. It could only be there as an overtone, created by other chords. So, they played the notes of a monster movie and let the harmonics happen. A cinematic juggernaut named Godzilla was the result. It probably isn't necessary, but here is a brief summary of the conflict at the heart of the 54 film. It's by David Callett, film historian and writer in the second edition of A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series. 
Callet writes, A series of unexplained maritime disasters occurs around Odo Island, a fishing community whose natives believe the mysterious events herald the return of their god, Godzilla. Paleontologist Dr. Yamane discovers evidence that a prehistoric creature has been awakened from millions of years of underground hibernation by recent hydrogen bomb tests, and the creature is now itself radioactive. As the creature attacks Tokyo without reason or pity, the Japanese Self-Defense Force finds itself unable to prevent catastrophic destruction. Meanwhile, a reclusive scientist named Serizawa struggles privately with his conscience. He has invented a device that could stop Godzilla, but in so doing, might trigger a new arms race. Which is the worst threat to humanity? Allowing Godzilla to rampage or to unleash a new weapon of mass destruction? Now that's just skillful writing, isn't it? For my money, David Callett's Critical History and Filmography, both editions, is an indispensable source, impeccably researched and thoughtfully assembled. And his summary really nails the agonizing choice that gives weight to the story, that of Dr. Sarazawa and his fearsome invention, the oxygen destroyer, and whether or not to use it. By creating this remove, by making a giant monster the destroyer of the city, and giving Japan possession of an ultimate weapon, writers Shigeru Kayama, Takeo Murata, and Ishiro Honda could finally address the forbidden issues that haunted the Japanese conscience. In other words, Honda and company crafted a movie that could be viewed as a solemn yet not unenjoyable giant monster story in the tradition of King Kong, or Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. But it felt like something more, and it was, deliberately so, made to be suggestive of the war experience by those who had lived through it. Toho did not have to wait long to see if Godzilla resonated with filmgoers. Opening day ticket sales were the highest in Japanese history, aided by a radio play based on the shooting script that had unfolded in serial fashion in the months leading up to the film's release. Godzilla would go on to amass well over 9 million viewers and 152 million yen. Tanaka's job was safe. And an icon of world cinema was born. Perhaps it's most paradoxically popular, a collision of ancient and modern, prehistory meets the hydrogen bomb, a marauding monster who was also incredibly marketable. It's worth mentioning, Western fans didn't see this original version of Godzilla until the 1980s at the earliest, when a subtitled version hit the art house circuit. 
Of course, in 1956, North American Monster Kids had flocked to see Godzilla, King of the Monsters, starring Raymond Burr as reporter Steve Martin. And its development is another episode in itself. Today, there have been a couple major home video releases of the 54 Godzilla, most notably the two-disc DVD set by Classic Media, featuring audio commentaries by Steve Rifle and Ed Godzieszewski, and the Criterion Collection Blu-ray, augmented with audio commentary from the aforementioned author David Callett, and a wealth of bonus features. The original has been shown on TV stations like Turner Classic Movies, various theater screenings and conventions like G-Fest, and today, with the push of a few buttons, it's available to be streamed on demand. The point is, it's more possible today than it's ever been to see Godzilla in its original form, and I really hope you will. By all means, make use of the expert commentaries available. They are uniformly excellent. Or let the imagery and acting and music speak for itself. This is one of the greatest monster movies ever made. And because there's so much more to it than that, it's one of the crown jewels of Japanese cinema. We're very fortunate to have GFAN Magazine as a resource partner for Monster Study Group. GFAN is short for Godzilla Fan, and it is created by the fans for the fans. Founded in 1992 by Canadian educator J.D. Lees, GFAN now spans 127 issues and continues to be published on a quarterly basis in print only. Featuring interviews with those who made and starred in classic Japanese special effects productions, in-depth analysis and behind-the-scenes reports, eye-popping artwork, collectible roundups, book reviews, information about G-Fest, and subscriber-exclusive inserts such as press book reproductions, posters, and calendars, G-Fan is the ultimate fanzine. Do yourself a favor and look into a subscription. In the U.S., it's $25 for one year, four issues. A two-year, eight-issue subscription is $45. And international subscriptions are also available. You can sign up today at g-fan.com. And while you're there, check out the back issues that are available. Just $6 a piece plus shipping. I've been a subscriber for years and I'm still thrilled to sit down with each new issue. Find out what that's like for yourself. Visit g-fan.com. That's g-fan.com. It's time to enter the G-Fan reading room. The issue is number 12. The article is entitled 
the making of Godzilla behind the scenes secrets of the film that launched the kaiju genre by Ed Godzieszewski. Much to the unexpected delight of Toho International, Godzilla destroyed much more than just Tokyo. It eventually smashed box office records around the world and permanently established Toho in the international film community. But whereas the success of the film is apparent, little is known about the story behind its creation. As a historical background to the film, on March 1st of 1954, the tuna trawler Daigo Fukuryu Maru accidentally wandered into the atomic bomb testing zone at the Bikini Atoll. One of the crew was killed by radiation poisoning as a result, dying after his return to Japan on September 23rd. Public outcry over this scandal prompted the formation of the anti-bomb test group in Japan on August 8th. Due to these news items, 1954 was a prime year for an H-bomb monster movie, and the film had a tremendous impact on the public. It was Tomoyuki Tanaka, executive producer at Toho, who was responsible for creating Godzilla. Regarding the manner in which the film was created, Tanaka revealed the unusual origin of his idea. I was up against a deadline when I first thought of Godzilla, and I made it up all at the last minute. At that time, Toho was collaborating with Indonesia to make a blockbuster film to be called Beyond the Glory. This film was going to be Toho's eyeball, or premiere release for the year. It was just before Crank In, Ryo Ikebe and Toshiko Yamaguchi were to be the stars, but they couldn't get a visa from the Indonesian government, so the film was canceled. It was easy to say that the film was just canceled, but now I had to come up with something big enough to replace it. On the plane ride back to Tokyo, I was so desperate and I was sweating the whole time. Tanaka wanted to make some sort of monster movie like the American King Kong, which had been a huge hit before the war. Thinking that if he could take this idea and somehow connect it with a social theme about the nuclear age, perhaps something special would happen. He pitched his idea to Toho executives under the title The Big Monster from 20,000 Miles Beneath the Sea, and by mid-April, he had received the green light. At this time, a man named Eiji Tsuburaya was in charge of the special effects department at Toho. While working for Nikatsu in Kyoto during the 1930s, Tsuburaya had seen Willis O'Brien's monster classic King Kong, an experience which had a profound effect on the young filmmaker. Envisioning the day when he could film his own monster movie, Tsuburaya developed a story outline about a gigantic octopus attacking a ship. When Tsuburaya got wind of Tanaka's proposed project, he dusted off his story outline and submitted it to Tanaka, snaring the job as a result. The film went into production untitled, the scenario being written under the designation G for Giant. Tanaka engaged Shigeru Kayama, a famous Japanese science fiction writer, 
to pen the original screenplay on May 2, 1954. In the meantime, Tanaka continued to search for a title for his film. Several versions of the origin for the name Gojira, pronounced Godzilla, have been told, but according to Tanaka himself, the name was brought to his attention by his friend Ichiro Sato. In the course of their conversation, Sato mentioned a burly man on the Toho lot whose physical presence was so imposing that he was likened to a gorilla and whale. The staff had given the man the nickname Gojira, a combination of the words gorilla and kujira, whale. Tanaka took a liking to the name and decided to use it for his monster. With all phases of production underway and with a title for his film, Tanaka announced production of the film to the world on July 5th, 1954. Kayama's original screenplay underwent several revisions. The biggest change was to drop Tsuburaya's octopus, the creature's inability to move on land somewhat limiting its potential as a threat, and replace it with an amphibious reptile. Relationships between the human characters were also altered. Kayama's early draft of the original Godzilla story centered on Shinkichi, the boy from Odo Island whose brother Masaji was killed by Godzilla during the typhoon as the main character. Shinkichi was to leave Odo Island after gaining a job with Ogata's salvage company thanks to a reference from Ogata. The boy eventually comes to Tokyo where he takes up residence at Dr. Yamane's house. Dr. Yamane himself was a very peculiar character in this first version. Living in a dark Gothic mansion and stealing about Dressed in a dark cape, the scientist character was so weird as to be considered a distraction from the monster itself. The original story treatment, which was finally submitted by Kayama to Toho, based on Eiji Tsuburaya's giant octopus scenario, presented all the main characters which eventually appeared in the film version, except for reporter Hagawara and the physician Dr. Tanabe. While the skeletal structure of the film lies within, both the monster and the characters were developed far differently, save for Dr. Serizawa. Kayama's story was a bit more straightforward and lacking the suspense of what was filmed, with Godzilla appearing in the very first scene and being seen clearly by all the Odo Island natives during the storm. The love triangle of the three main characters was absent, with Serizawa's character appearing but twice. Once when Emiko visited him and learned his secret, and again at the conclusion. Dr. Yamane, who remains in Tokyo throughout the story due to a physical handicap, conducted himself with far less demeanor than his film counterpart, becoming enraged when the plan to electrocute Godzilla goes into effect. He even goes so far as to try and destroy the power station control room, making him seem eccentric and therefore less respectable. As far as the monster Godzilla itself, Kayama's story seemed understandably less spectacular as he could not have foreseen the ability of Eiji Tsuburaya and his staff to create stunning visuals. 
The monster in the story treatment was written on a more animal-like level, its appearance mostly fueled by hunger. In fact, several scenes were written to graphically describe Godzilla's feeding, while the destruction and confrontation with the armed forces is considerably toned down. The sense of overwhelming power of the monster and the impression of Godzilla attacking an arrogant mankind was subdued at best in Kayama's version, as the beast's actions are described matter-of-factly. This was in contrast to the Godzilla appearing on film, a devastating beast whose relentless assault on mankind truly seemed like nature's radioactive revenge. Kayama did draw on other sources for inspiration in his story, the most obvious instance of which was Godzilla destroying a lighthouse in Tokyo Bay, borrowing directly from the 1953 film The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which itself was inspired by Ray Bradbury's short story The Foghorn, about a dinosaur attacking a lighthouse on a foggy night. Although Kayama's story provided a basis for the film, it was ultimately just a typical monster-on-the-loose scenario. Screenwriters Takeo Murata and Ishiro Honda deserved much of the credit for infusing the story with the elements which elevated Godzilla to the level of cinema classic. Though Kayama wrote the crucial dramatic scene, the confrontation with Serizawa over the use of the oxygen destroyer, the rest of the original story wandered from event to event without building up to this point. The screenplay's edition of The Love Triangle, with Emiko's betrothal to Serizawa, made by Dr. Yamane years earlier, meshed each main character's motivations with the others, and channeled them towards a single dramatic conclusion. While Emiko and Ogata retained their status as hero, heroine, and love interest in both versions, their presence in the original story was rather incidental, as opposed to integral effect they have on Serizawa in the screenplay. The rather emotionless nature of the original story was instead replaced by an emotionally charged setting, wherein Serizawa's personal agony and ultimate sacrifice are felt on several levels, as both a scientist whose life was dedicated to bettering mankind but who instead found the most horrible force in nature, and as a private man whose life had been ruined by the war and who had to face up to the loss of his fiancée to his best friend. Dr. Yamane's character was made more believable in the screenplay by toning down his insane rage at man's attempts to destroy Godzilla. From this more rational man, his plea to study Godzilla not only as a rare specimen, but more importantly because of its ability to survive the bomb, seemed more credible and thus invited serious contemplation by the viewer. The screenplay's superior dramatic approach was also typified by the typhoon scene. Rather than reveal Godzilla at this point, as in the original story, an element of suspense and horror was added by having the monster's appearance masked by the storm. This also preserved the shock element of Godzilla's first appearance in a later scene, the beast unexpectedly popping his head over the mountaintop. And finally, the drama of Serizawa's death was magnified immensely by the screenplay's edition of Serizawa's final words, Farewell, be happy together. 
With but these few words, the audience is hit with the full measure of Serizawa's personal suffering, aware all along of Emiko and Ogata's involvement. His death will also provide them an honorable way out of their personal dilemma. The final screenplay for Godzilla also contained a number of scenes which were omitted after filming had commenced. Originally, the research team on Odo Island sets up camp on the beach to investigate the devastated village a full day prior to Godzilla's appearance, at which time they also go to visit the cemetery where Shinkichi's brother and mother have been buried, a scene filmed but later cut. Although radiation is found everywhere in the village, the discovery of the trilobite is not made at this time. Instead, a scene inside Emiko and Dr. Yamane's tent was to have taken place at night, where the scientist gives an indication that he knows what is responsible for the village's destruction. A last-minute change to the final screenplay altered the first appearance of Godzilla the following morning. As originally conceived, Emiko and Ogata are out on the beach. As Emiko breathes in the fresh morning air, she is startled to see a huge rock in the surf suddenly begin to vibrate. When Emiko screams, Ogata notices that the boulder is indeed moving, actually the tip of Godzilla's tail. Shinkichi rushes forth with a rifle and fires a few shots at the rock as it disappears behind a cliff. From this point, the ringing of the bell and the appearance of Godzilla from over the mountain occurs, although Godzilla is first seen with a bleeding cow hanging from its mouth. Godzilla then disappears after setting the trees on the mountaintop afire, followed by Dr. Yamane's group inspecting the gigantic footprints on the beach where the trilobite is eventually found. While an intriguing idea, it is somewhat uncertain whether the proposed optical effect of the tail would have clearly been discernible to the viewer as what it was intended to be. Also, by dropping the idea of the bleeding cow hanging from the monster's jaw, Subaraya accomplished two things, eliminating a prop which did not necessarily look convincing or recognizable, and creating a more shocking effect by taking away a distraction to the viewer. Some subtle touches of characterization were also removed from the screenplay, which, though interesting, were not vital to the story. One scene was to show all the principal characters riding in a car through the streets of Tokyo upon their return from Odo Island. While the dialogue covers little vital ground except to voice Dr. Yamane's doubts about the effects of revealing his research, the staging of the scene itself clarifies Serizawa's involvement with the Yamane family. The unspoken implication of Ogata sitting in the front seat while Serizawa sits in back with Emiko and Dr. Yamane is obvious, and Dr. Yamane is shown to consider Serizawa a scientific colleague as well as a future son-in-law. Another such scene dropped was to have shown two men discussing their fears on a street corner as it rains and a radio announcement reports news of Godzilla. Everyone seems struck by a sense of dread and fear except for a wounded war veteran standing under an awning in the background, Dr. Serizawa. 
Also, the filmed scene where Dr. Yamane arrives home quite depressed is explained by a cutscene taking place in a beer hall. A TV report on the depth charge operation is cheered by the patrons who assume Godzilla has been destroyed. Amid all the revelry, Dr. Yamane, who has been sitting to the side, gets up and leaves. Although the film concluded with a salute to the sacrifice of Sarazawa by the military as their ship returns from its mission, the story was intended to finish with a scene where Ogata and Emiko fly out over Tokyo Bay in a helicopter, dropping a memorial wreath for Sarazawa into the waters below. While a nice personal tribute from his friends, the scene was really unnecessary and was dropped by Honda. Upon completion of the scenario, the story was translated into hundreds of storyboards by Iweo Mori. Based on these sketches, Eiji Tsuburaya set out to design his special effects. Director Honda was able to tap a fine cast of actors from the Toho lot. The distinguished and highly respected Takashi Shimura was selected to play the eminent paleontologist Dr. Yamane. Akihiko Hirata was originally selected to play the role of Ogata, but after several screen tests he was deemed unsuitable for the part, instead being given the role of Dr. Serizawa. The handsome young actor Akira Takarada was given the role of Ogata, his good looks more appropriate to the romantic lead. Every bit as important a part of the pre-production was designing the true star of the film, Godzilla. Tanaka related the process. I asked special effects expert Eiji Tsuburaya, who I knew wanted to make a movie about a giant octopus in the Indian Ocean, to make 10 or so models, about two meters tall, all in clay. We picked one from that. The monster had to be frightening yet it had to have some kind of likable part to it. For this reason, they based it on a dinosaur, so the monster would not be so horrible that kids who would see it would not be afraid to go to the bathroom at night. The reptilian concept of the beast was based closely on the dinosaurs Tyrannosaurus rex and Iguanodon, but with one distinctive difference, rows of multi-plated dorsal fins down the center of the back. Based on some of the first illustrations, Sadami Toshimitsu was assigned the task of sculpting a clay model of Godzilla. His first prototype closely resembled a Tyrannosaurus, but with a large, wide head. The body was covered in serpentine scales to lend it more the appearance of a sea creature. A second model reduced the size of the head and eliminated some of the more serpentine features adding more bulk to the lower torso for a more massive and ponderous look. As the scaly look was deemed unsatisfactory, this new design, called the Warty Godzilla, used large rounded bumps for skin texture. The third and final model was dubbed the Alligator Godzilla, using the same physical characteristics and proportions as the Warty Godzilla, but substituting a skin texture of small linear bumps for skin detail. It was this model which was approved as Godzilla's final look. 
Eager to whet the appetites of potential moviegoers, Toho developed a broadcast play of Godzilla for the radio. Aired between July 17th and September 25th, 1954, over Japan Broadcasting, this enterprising publicity stunt assured Toho that audiences would be tantalized by the monster's voice each week during that period. Actual filming began early in August with the production team being split into three teams. A group consisted of the actors and crew who would film the drama under the direction of Ishiro Honda, going to Tobu and Mie for location shooting. The remainder of the drama would be photographed on Toho sound stages in suburban Tokyo. In writing about his experiences on this film, Honda summed up the approach of the production team. When the three of us, Subaraya, Tanaka, and Honda, talked about the project, we said not to be shy or embarrassed because this was a monster. We must think of it as real, not just a ridiculous monster in Tokyo created by bombs. Filming of the drama took a little over six weeks. Honda recalled, My memories of filming Godzilla are that I was concentrating so hard on it, I would forget everything else. At the sea location, I got badly burned on my back. We were shooting all day in the bright summer sun, and I was without a shirt, when I realized that my back was severely burned, and it swelled up terribly. This was especially unfortunate since the scenes of the research team camped on the beach of Odo Island were subsequently cut from the film. B Group consisted of the unit in charge of special effects surrounding Godzilla, while C Group was established to handle the effects animation. B's first task was to construct a monster suit. Budget constraints and lack of technical capability mandated the man-in-suit approach. Using the clay model as a reference, Sadami Toshimitsu and Kanzi Yagi constructed Godzilla under the close scrutiny of Eiji Tsuburaya. Once the basic form of the monster's body was sketched over the outline of the actor's body on a wall panel, plaster molds approximating the proportions were made, into which liquid latex was poured. The hardened rubber removed from the mold was to be used as Godzilla's outer skin. To add support for the skin and to give the costume enough bulk to make it look solid, an inner skin of cloth thickly stuffed with bamboo and urethane foam was made. The latex skin was affixed to the surface of the inner skin. The head and tail were built separately and permanently attached upon completion. The entire suit was lacquered a dark charcoal gray. The first suit to be constructed turned out to be too heavy and stiff for the monster actors to use, so a second costume had to be built. A zippered opening was affixed along the dorsal fin for the actor to enter the suit. Care had to be taken to be sure the suit did not fit too tightly around the actor's body, as constant rubbing against it would raise painful blisters. The actor's head was positioned in the base of the suit's neck, where but a few minute holes were placed through which the actor could see and breathe. The head of the monster was mounted on a brace atop the actor's head. The suit was completely manual in operation, 
the tail attached to overhead wires and the opening and closing of the jaw controlled from within the costume by the actor. Two individuals shared the task of portraying Godzilla, Haruo Nakajima and Katsumi Tetsuka. Nakajima almost always has received sole credit for the part of Godzilla, and indeed, he played the role for each subsequent film until he retired in 1972. But in the first film, he shared the honor with another, though Nakajima did virtually all of the suit work. In his early 20s at the time, Nakajima was a hopeful stunt actor looking forward to a career in samurai films. His great strength made him a perfect choice for the role of Godzilla. With the suit weighing well over 100 pounds, great effort was required to move about inside. Walking was rather difficult, since in addition to dragging its heavy bulk around, the oversized feet were cumbersome and often got tangled up in each other. Due to the inflexibility of the costume, walking in anything other than a straight line was all but impossible. The heavy tail helped add a counterweight to the suit, but Nakajima could scarcely maneuver it around. Filming was a grueling experience for Nakajima. The combination of hot studio lights and non-existent ventilation inside the suit were unbearable, and the weight of the suit could only be borne for a few minutes at a time. A normal schedule consisted of an out-of-suit rehearsal with Subaraya directing the action, a 7-10 to 10 minute in-suit rehearsal without the studio lights, and then a take. Due to the intense heat, Nakajima could barely last three minutes during filming. Every effort was made to maximize footage shot so as to minimize the number of takes. The strain on Nakajima resulted in several mishaps during filming. One of the most famous occurred as Godzilla approached the Matsuzakaya department store, suddenly collapsing to the floor. Nakajima had passed out, an incident which was repeated several times during the production. Nakajima was generally so exhausted after each take that he did not have enough strength to extricate himself from the suit. Once he had been freed, it was not unusual for over a cup of sweat to be drained from inside the suit. Tea and salt water were constantly on hand for Nakajima, to replace his bodily fluids. For the experience of portraying Godzilla, Nakajima was rewarded with severe muscle cramps, a body full of painful blisters, and a small salary. He lost well over 20 pounds over the course of filming, but he did gain some small measure of revenge on Godzilla in the film. Haruo also played the part of the electrician who threw the switch as Godzilla walked into the high-tension towers. To allow the actors to escape the ordeal of the costume for close-ups of Godzilla's feet trampling the city, a body section from the waist down was constructed, minus the tail. This device had rope suspenders allowing the actor to stomp around wearing the legs like a pair of pants. Godzilla did not appear only as a man in suit. Subaraya also used two small models of the monster. One was a hand puppet, seen only from the shoulders on up, fitted with a device which would shoot a smoky spray from the mouth, simulating the atomic breath. This model was also used as Godzilla bit the radio tower, toppling it. 
A second model was a small electronically controlled puppet built from the waist up. Used in a number of medium and close-up shots, such as Godzilla's first appearance, this model had small, rigid arms, moving eyes, and an operable mouth. Eiji Tsuburaya was faced with a number of problems in creating visual effects. Godzilla was supposed to be 50 meters tall, but since the suit measured only 2 meters in height, miniatures were required to be constructed at a 125th scale. To achieve realism, Tsuburaya could not film at normal speed since movement at that pace would appear too quick and unnatural for objects supposedly so large. Consequently, high-speed photography was utilized. The actor in the suit was instructed to go through the action rather quickly as the camera cranked at faster than normal speeds. The result, when projected at normal speed, created a massive lumbering monster and miniatures which crumbled realistically. Since this technique required lighting of higher intensity, Subaraya resolved not to use it in every scene because of the extra strain on the crew and especially on Nakajima. The construction of miniatures was a painstaking and exacting process. Structures could not be made of hollow shells. Each had to have the necessary internal walls and floors to appear realistic. For the scene where Godzilla attacked Ginza, a three-block portion of the district was reproduced in miniature. When Subaraya inspected the set, he was dissatisfied with its detail and accuracy, so he ordered the entire set be destroyed and rebuilt. Fortunately for the crew, their second attempt passed the director's scrutiny. When constructing miniature vehicles and weapons, heavy cast iron was used to make cannons and artillery which could absorb the recoil from explosions without vibrating unnaturally. Subaraya proved a master of innovation during filming, as exemplified in the scene where Godzilla's atomic breath melts the high-tension towers. Metal towers and wires would have required a tremendous amount of heat to be melted, likely necessitating a real flame. Intending to use animation and a powdery gas to simulate the atomic breath, Subaraya devised a simple means of achieving the effect. A set of wax miniature towers was built and painted silver. When a hot studio light was brought to bear on the miniature, the paint ran off, exposing the wax just before the rest of the structure melted away. The resulting effect of the towers turning white hot and dissolving was perfectly convincing. Honda and Subaraya collaborated closely on the setup and direction to be taken in special effects scenes. One rather amusing experience from this time was related by director Honda. We, Honda and Subaraya, were on the Matsu Zakaya department store rooftop in Ginza, discussing the possibility of starting a fire at Shinbashi and having it spread to Ginza, and we wondered what people would be thinking of us if they overheard our conversation. Sure enough, at the first floor exit, we were stopped and investigated. An important phase of the production was creating a roar for Godzilla. The intent was to create a powerful sound unlike that of any existing animal. Various tests using animal roars, which were mixed, reverberated, and reversed, all proved unsatisfactory. 
Godzilla's distinctive roar was eventually created by film composer Akira Ifukube, who hit upon the idea of rubbing a contrabass with a coarse resin-coated leather glove and then reverberating the sound. Godzilla's footsteps were created by striking a kettle drum with a large rope knotted at one end. Akira Ifukube, whose scores were to become a trademark of Toho science fiction and fantasy films, began his genre experience with Godzilla. Warned away from scoring the film by his colleagues at the time, Ifukube did not heed their words and instead accepted the challenge. He knew very little of the title character, being told only that it would be one of the biggest things ever on the screen. With that bit of knowledge, a copy of the shooting script, and seeing some of Tsuburaya's rushes, Ifukube proceeded to author a powerful composition in less than one week. Hardly a viewer can forget the ominous, pounding march of Godzilla's rampage through Tokyo, conjuring up an atmosphere of death. After two months of pre-production and 122 days of filming, Godzilla was completed and ready for release. The entire cast and crew assembled for a festive party on the Toho lot, where the Godzilla suit, stuffed and mounted atop a platform, overlooked the celebration. The film represented a huge gamble for Toho. An average Japanese production at the time cost 240,000 yen, but the budget for Godzilla came in at an astounding 60 million yen. Striking theatrical prints and the cost of advertising pushed the total spent on the project over 100 million yen. As it turned out, the investment was a wise one. The film did phenomenal business, both in Japan and subsequently worldwide. Godzilla premiered in Japan on November 3rd, 1954, huge banners and artwork gracing each theater in which the film played. A wait of over two hours for a ticket was not uncommon. The enthusiastic response of the public was typified by the opening day crowds at Toho theaters around Tokyo, Nichigeki, 8,749, Shibuya, 7,554, Shinjuku, 5,851, Asakusa, 6,503. The rewards of Godzilla were not merely financial. Tsuburaya won the Japanese Film Technique Award for his work, and the film received critical acclaim throughout the world. To this day, it remains the undeniable favorite among nearly all monster fans in Japan, and it is considered by many in Japan to be the second greatest Japanese film ever made, second only to Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Godzilla's success enabled Toho to produce a wave of science fiction and fantasy films which, after a pause during the 1980s owing to soaring costs and dwindling audiences, has revived and continues to this day. Thank you so much for joining me today on this excursion from Odo Island all the way to Tokyo Bay. 
I'd welcome your feedback on Twitter or Instagram or by writing to monsterstudygroup at outlook.com. GFAN is published by Daikaiju Enterprises Limited and written consent was obtained to present today's article. Until next time, keep studying monsters. <laughs>